Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, reading verses 13 through 16, though we will read one extra verse through verse 17. So, Mark 10, beginning in verse 13, God's Word. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So at one point in your life, nearly all of us will either be a secretary or have a secretary which we now call nowadays called an administrative assistant. And one of the jobs of a secretary is to be a gatekeeper. They monitor access to the boss, which is not just setting up appointments, but allowing only the right ones. A good secretary will turn away those who will waste the boss's time and will ensure that those valuable clients get a meeting. Indeed, a really good secretary is kind of on the same wavelength with the boss and can carry out the boss's will wonderfully without even asking. While a poor secretary, they don't understand the business, they make work harder for the boss, and they regularly admit or exclude the wrong person. Well, whether Jesus asked for it or not, the apostles have taken it upon themselves to be the 12 secretaries for our Lord. They are all too happy to be the gatekeepers for him. Though it is time for a performance review, and it becomes painfully evident that the disciples are bad secretaries. So at present, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples in a house where he is fielding their questions on his instruction on marriage and divorce. This private teaching session, though, is without delay interrupted. Now, Mark is short on details, but presumably there was a knock on the door. James opens it, and a herd of parents confront him. A mom is swaddling her infant. A three-year-old girl sits on her pa's shoulders. An uncle holds her niece's hand. There's a hodgepodge of parents and guardians who've brought their kids of various ages and sizes. The crowd looks like a queue wanting to get into the wild animal park. Andrew whispers to James, what do they think this is a petting zoo? And sure enough, these moms and dads have brought their kids to get a touch from Jesus, which has been a theme in Mark. Our Lord has performed his wonders and miracles primarily by speaking and with a touch. Jesus put his hand on the defiling leper to purify him. Illness disappeared under the fingerprints of our Lord. He grasped the hand of the girl to lift her out of the pit of death. The bleeding woman was cured by a mere brush of his garment. He put his fingers in deaf ears to make them hear and Jesus laid his palms on a blind man to give him technicolor vision. 
And because of this embracing practice, the desire to bump into Jesus became the act of faith. A noble and trusting faith reached out to Jesus to lay a finger on him. Well did faith see salvation laying in the hands, the healing hands of the king. These parents then demonstrate a sure faith in the Lord. They trust in the hands of Jesus to shower grace upon their little kids. Though Mark does not specify a distinct purpose for the parents, Sure, some of them likely required a healing from a malady or a birth defect for their kids. And yet, as Jesus ends up just blessing them in verse 16, many of the moms and dads were just seeking a blessing for their kids, a gift of grace from Jesus. This, of course, begs the question, on what basis did the parents come? What made these adults think that Jesus had interest in their rugrats? Well, they are Israelites, and so the Old Testament was the basis of their confidence. And in the Old Testament, God's promises consistently and faithfully extend to the whole family. The Lord promised Abraham gifts for him and his offspring after him. Particularly in the prophets, the Lord heralded his greater second exodus salvation for parent and child. God would gather his people to himself, and their sons and daughters would be carried home from far off. Zechariah talked about how the people would return and live with their children. The second exodus salvation that the people waited for included their kids. In fact, two Old Testament passages stand out in this regard. First, in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord promises that after exile, he would circumcise the heart of his people and the heart of their kiddos. A gift of a new heart of flesh fell to the children as well. Secondly, as we read in Jeremiah, the Lord foretold of a new everlasting covenant for their good and for the good of their children after them. These folk, then, have a double-layered faith. They trust in God's covenant grace that it extends to their kids, and they believe that the Lord will administer this grace through the hands of Jesus. Needless to say, these are spiritually sharp parents. These are the folk you're happy to open the door to and welcome them in. The apostles, though, do not feel the same way, for they slam the door in their faces. The twelve go off the handle and strongly rebuke the parents for being in the wrong. And this vigorous scolding bumps us up into another theme that we've seen in the book of Mark. For we have seen this rebuking before, and it's what Jesus did to demons. Yes, the Lord rebuked evil spirits with a great verbal blast to drive them out and destroy them. Similarly, Jesus rebuked the stormy wind and turbulent sea when it raged against them. This rebuke has been the spiritual sword against the forces of the evil one. Thus, Jesus rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. And yet the disciples take this demon gun and they aim it at the parents holding their kids. Their moral outrage is way over the top. 
The authority they brandish is sharp and unbending. They lord their position over these folk as if they are impure spirits needing to be banished. In fact, the disciples here play the gatekeepers for Jesus. They bar the kids from Jesus as if Jesus is not interested in them at all. The Lord is too lofty, too important to be to care about or to be bothered with be bothered by some ankle biters or toddlers. Indeed, the apostles create their own standard for access to Jesus and entrance into the kingdom. They stand in the gate as if they are sword-girded Levites in the temple. They make the soup Nazis seem gentle. No Jesus for you. Now, why the disciples play Billy Go Gruff We're not entirely sure. Presumably, this is due to the low status of kids who had no formal legal rights. Kids were also seen as being foolish and irrational until they reached adulthood, and thus kids were to be kept in the strict schoolhouse of discipline. Either way, the strong authority flexed by the apostles here reveals that they're still obsessed with honor, And they are yet competing for the better seats and positions. Just in the last chapter, Jesus told them, do not compete. And he warned them of putting stumbling blocks before little ones. But here are the disciples, and they still do both of these. Slow doesn't quite do them justice. And sure enough, Jesus sees them playing the secretary, and he's furious. Anger boils within him as a steaming teapot. The perfect patience of our Lord is not easily provoked, but the disciples inflame divine wrath here. Jesus, though, keeps his wrath within the proper borders of righteousness. So he orders them to cease and desist. Permit the kids to come to me. Stop hindering or forbidding them. Open the door, he says, and let the kiddos enter to me. And this command not to hinder links back to chapter 9, verse 38, when John hindered the man from casting out demons, and Jesus told him to knock it off. The disciples are making the very same mistake once again. This means the topic on the table is still access and entrance into the kingdom of God. And sure enough, Jesus gives the motive or reason for why kids should be allowed to come to him. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Kids such as these are the possessors of the kingdom. Now, our Lord employs the kids kids here both literally and figuratively. That is, these actual children have ownership in the kingdom, But the literal kids are also symbolic of a class. They represent a type, a particular status or character of a person. And yet, what does it mean that the kingdom belongs to them? Well, to possess a kingdom means you are a citizen of it with the rights, privileges, and duties of the kingdom. They have member status, which grants them the rights to the kingdom benefits. Jesus affirms that kids have a legal standing in his kingdom. They might not in the world, but they do with him. 
And where does Jesus get this idea or truth from? From the Old Testament. There the promise was for parents and their children. The sign of circumcision was given to boys as a sign of the covenant. After birth, all babies went through a ritual of purification in accordance to the law. For firstborn males, they were redeemed at one month. And the covenant plot of land was transferred from parents to their children throughout the generations. And so Jesus states that kids are members of the covenant by virtue of the Old Testament promises and vouched safe by the law. And our Lord commends and ratifies the faith of the parents for thinking and believing according to these kingdom truths. In this way, Jesus asserts that his kingdom has this in common with the Old Testament. But not only this, he goes further. Kids have membership in his kingdom, and they are the model for entering the kingdom. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And our Lord's statement here is is rather radical and even offensive. We often miss the vinegar of this line, for we have a Disney approach to kids. We color childhood with sentimentality and mystique. Kids are so innocent, sweet, charming, agreeable, and trusting. The purity of youth is the ideal for us. And sure, the joy of kids can be honey drizzled over gelato. But to idealize children only exposes us as forgetful parents. They all are called the terrible twos because toddlers can be terrible. Kids whine and they're stubborn. They fight and pester their parents. In fact, kids are the miracle grow for gray hair. And the ancient world of Jesus viewed children very different from us. Sure, they love their kids and they prize them for carrying on the family name and honor. Nevertheless, as we pointed out, kids had no legal rights or privileges. They were officially nobodies. Secondly, with high mortality rates, kids were considered small, weak, and extremely vulnerable. From what we know, most couples probably lost more kids than they raised to adulthood. Moreover, in the Roman world, if a pregnancy was unwanted, they would abort Or if the baby was undesired, they would expose the infant to die or to be picked up. Third, kids were seen as mentally deficient and ignorant. They thought they spoke nonsense, did not think rationally, and they were capricious, foolish, and quarrelsome. One Roman philosopher said, childhood itself cannot be praised, only its potential. Therefore, with strict discipline, kids had to be shaped into something positive. In fact, to be called a child or to be likened to a kid was typically an insult. Scripture does this as well. In Proverbs, youth and fool can be synonyms. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells us, um, tells us not to be childish in our thinking, but to be mature. So for Jesus to say that we have to enter the kingdom as a child is offensive. It seems negative. We have to be ignorant nobodies to get into the kingdom? We have to put a diaper back on to have access to Jesus? 
And this is even more shocking since at the end of chapter 9, Jesus equated entering the kingdom with eternal life in heaven. It was contrasted with the unceasing fires of hell. So only children enter the salvation of heaven? What then does our Lord mean that we must receive the kingdom like a child to enter it? Well, there are three parts to what he means. First, the child receives, which means it's a gift. The kingdom is not a wage we earn. It is not an honor we achieve or a benefit you're worthy of. Rather, it is a gift of God and it is received. And this itself is a stumbling block, for we prefer a blessing that we did something to earn. We did our duty. We were good and nice people. We weren't that bad. We showed zeal. Our pride doesn't really want a gift, but it desires a reward with a pat on the back. This is why we read verse 17. Mark sets up a contrast between child reception and the man who asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus gave the answer before this question was even posed. You do nothing, but the kingdom is received as a gift. Secondly, this gift is is accepted like a child, as one with no status or standing. As kids, we are conceived and born in sin. Children were painted as foolish and uninformed. Infants were extremely dependent, extra vulnerable to death. No child can survive on its own. One moment, a baby will smile and charm your soul, and the next, they'll scream and kick like a feral cat. As an adult, who wants to admit that we are diaper-wearing dependents with no self-control? But this is humble, the humble stance of faith. As children, we receive the kingdom as unworthy nobodies, as terrible twos, as weaklings a hair breaths away from death. As kids, we bring and offer nothing except our complete neediness. Third, our Lord sets forth kids as the standard for being passive. The babies and toddlers were carried to Jesus. The kiddos didn't choose Jesus. It was not their idea or will to go to Jesus but they were brought by the will of their parents. Passively, the will of another brought them to Jesus, which is a sign of the Father drawing us to Christ, even apart from our own wills. Being dead in sin, God works irresistibly on our wills to give us faith. Kids carried to Jesus to enter the kingdom is a symbol of the Father's sovereign regeneration of us to be made new. We are passive, but God works his salvation in us while we were yet enemies, when we were babbling babies not knowing our right from our left. And all these truths about the child reception of the kingdom display wonderfully The theology of baptism, a gift passively received as an unworthy nobody, is the the salvation pictured in our baptism. 
In baptism, God buries us with Christ and raises us to new life. We go from being spiritually death, dead to alive, just as babies perish without the love of a parent. In baptism, we stand as undeserving sinners condemned that God graciously brings us through judgment to be his child. And our baptisms are all about what God does to us. In baptism, we are passive, and the Lord brings us to himself just as he carried Israel through the Red Sea and Noah's family through the flood. Through baptism, we receive the kingdom as helpless and passive babies as the Lord regenerates us to be his trusting children. We often think that adult baptisms are the norm. The standard and infant baptism is the exception. But from this passage, our Lord says not so. The model for baptism is baby baptism. Because we all enter the kingdom as passive sinners by God's grace. Whether you're one month old or 60 years old at your baptism, we're all baptized as babies. We enter the kingdom as passive recipients carried by the arms of the Lord. Hence, Jesus pushes his bad secretaries aside He takes up each kid into his arm and blesses them by laying hands on them. By the hug and touch of Christ, these kids receive the grace of the kingdom of heaven. And pictured in your baptism, Jesus does the same for you. How are you saved? What must you do to earn eternal life? You just have to be a child and let Jesus do it for you. Indeed, the Father brings you to Christ for everlasting blessing because or before we are even aware of it. Thus, receiving the kingdom as a child is a marvelous demonstration that we're saved all of grace. It's not by our works, for kids haven't done anything. It's not by status, for we have none as sinners. You're not even saved ultimately by your will. For God works in us to will and believe in Christ. This is the sovereign grace and electing love of the Father to bring you to Jesus for atonement, for life, and blessing. Thus, receiving the kingdom is the humble faith to acknowledge that we are sinful infants soon to perish. It is also to realize that as we take the step In faith to confess Christ, that we did not act first, but God first worked in us by his regenerating love. Therefore, praise the Father for his gracious baptismal salvation, that he first drew us to the Son and made us able and willing to embrace him. And glory be to the Son for taking us into his arms and holding us in his blessed hands. For there is no better place for us to be, no other place of life, than to be in the hands of Christ, from which the evil one and nothing can pluck us out. Thus may you rejoice in what the Father and Son have done for you, and that the Spirit applies to you all of grace. Amen.